Uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, for those of you that are newer, we're especially glad you've come our way today. What a great question. Is the church relevant? Is the church important? Is the church even necessary? We're going to talk about that in a minute. Before we do, I want to pray for you. But before I pray for you, I just want to mention a couple of things. We were grateful to have uh, Matt filling in for Jerry today. But if you didn't notice in your program, um, Matt's also going to be going down Auburn Way in a couple of weeks and begin to help a new church plant down there with their worship. Some of you will remember we had a church planter here a few weeks ago from the Auburn area for Reliance Church. And we uh, heard a word from him. We prayed for him. Well, Matt and his family are going to be going there to help that plant get launched and lead worship starting uh, September 11. So uh, we won't get to see the Hurleys as much as we want to around here. We'll get to see them occasionally. We'll get you back over here when we have potlucks and things like that, I hope. And uh, we'll be praying for that church as well as the Hurley family there. Also, we had a fantastic camp out. I mean, it was just a lot of fun. We still have a few people that are there, and then we have a lot of others that are going on vacation today. But uh, we had uh, a lot of fun with each other. We baptized Carter Emil, which was a very special time. And uh, we had tremendous help from a lot of you guys. We had some, I, I'm a southern guy. I like my pulled pork barbecue a certain kind of way. Mike has Mary found out what that kind of way is. Woo! That was really good. Um, but I'm here to worship the Lord and not barbecue, so here we go. Uh, there are a few things out here in the lobby that some of you left at the camp out, and if you want to grab that on the way out, that would be really helpful. So thank you for, for that. And also, there's a, a little table out there with a backpack and stuff. There's a very cool project coming up in about three weeks, and we'd love for you to stop by there and get, get in on the, that project, all right? Let me pray for you, all right? Let's bow. Well, Father, I want to pray for our friends in the house today. As they came in the door, there's a variety of things going on in their lives, some of it just positive and celebratory. We give you thanks. And some of it's hard and disappointing, and for some even painful. And you said give thanks in all things because you're always at work. And so we, we, give, you thanks, we give you thanks for hard things, but we also pray that you would redeem those hard things, that you'd make them work for good, and that you'd form Christ in us through those hard things. We pray now you'd give us ears to hear, a mind to comprehend, and a heart that is responsive to your word. In Jesus' name. Well, as uh, the man on the street interview was asking, is the church relevant? Does it make any difference? Is it important? Why should we give it any time, any energy, any uh, of the assets that are a part of our lives? We're going to talk about that for the next few minutes. What we, For those of you that uh, are just joining us, we've been in a series of talks about 
being church. And the point is, is that church is not a building. It's not primarily an institution and an organization with offices and officers and so on like that. But from the very beginning, church has been a movement. It's been a movement of God into this world and across this world with good news, with a gospel that talks about who Jesus is and what Jesus did and all the difference that Jesus makes. Jesus lived that sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross, made it possible for us to be forgiven of getting sideways with God and and violating God, and then rose again, conquering death so that we can know life forever. So that message became a movement amongst a group of people that uh, went all over the Middle East and then all across Europe and all across this world and eventually to North America and to where we are today. And seemingly nothing could stop that movement. Even when uh, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities began to rise up in power against this small little fledgling gathering, and ecclesia is what it was called in the Greek, Uh, They couldn't stamp it out. And they began to um, take out the leaders. They began to crucify significant people to deter it. And they could not stop the movement with persecution. As a matter of fact, that uh, persecution was just like dousing gasoline on a flame. It just made it explode. And uh, this dispersion began to take place. Christians began to go everywhere as they were fleeing the persecution, and thus they were taking the message and the movement with them. The number one uh, oppressor, the number one persecutor, of course, was a guy named Saul, who also became a follower of Christ. We know him better as Paul. And he and others then began to go all over the known world planting churches. And this was like a wildfire just spreading across prairies. It was amazing. When we get to about 67 A.D., uh, the uh, king of uh, Rome, the Caesar, Nero, finally executed and killed Paul. But even that couldn't stop the movement. And this message was changing the lives of people. The, the people whose lives were being changed were having families changed. Families were changing communities. Communities were changing cities. Cities were changing regions. Regions were changing entire nations. And it's all historically verifiable. This isn't just some kind of mythology. The question today then is, okay, it was relevant then. It was making a difference then. The world was being turned right side up then. Is the church relevant today? Does it make a difference? Is it important? Is it a big deal today? And I'm going to contend absolutely yes. But here's the challenge. In our country and in your lifetime... The penetration of the gospel and of the presence of the church has been so deep, so pervasive, and so far-reaching, we take most of it for granted. And we're not even aware. Oh, we hold these values? Oh, we think this is right and wrong? Oh, we think this is the way life ought to uh, be taking place? We're not even aware that those are Christian birth kinds of values. We just think they're normal. 
But when you begin to survey the landscape around other parts of the world, you find out what normal is when church is not present. And our normal is a normal because of Christian influence. Let me get into that a little bit. A guy by the name of David Aikman uh, has been a longtime award-winning journalist and author. He's got bestseller books, all kinds of journalistic awards. For years and years, he was the bureau chief for Time Magazine in China. He's an Oxford-educated guy, got his Ph.D. in Chinese history and in Russian history right here at the University of Washington, spent years and years in Beijing. And uh, part of what he did when he was in Beijing uh, was he came across a factor that I think is very important for us to pay attention to, and it was this. There was a period of time in which social scientists studied intensely American life and Western culture to find out why is the West seemingly so far advanced from the rest of the world. And these social scientists in China who primarily uh, have been indoctrinated with Maoism and communism began to objectively, scientifically, historically examine our country, our culture. What they find out? Well, I want to give you a lengthy quote, so you're going to have to kind of sit up a little bit and pay attention because I don't want to lose you with the quote. All right? But here's what uh, Aikman discovered as he interviewed these Chinese social scientists. They said... One of the things that we were asked to look into was what accounted for the success, in fact, the preeminence of the West all over the world. We studied everything we could from historical, political, economic, and cultural perspective. So, in other words, this was a comprehensive study. This wasn't an anecdotal study. This wasn't this guy's opinion and that guy's opinion. And what do, we do, what do we derive from that? But this was a comprehensive look at American and Western life. And they said, at first we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Next, we focused on your economic system. So notice, this is not only a comprehensive, but this is a systems study. They're looking at a variety of systems, and they are examining those things very carefully and very meticulously. But in the past 20 years, this is a long, longitudinal, I can't even say, it. it's a long study. <laughs> longitudinal, I still can't say it. It's a long study. 20 years, here's what we have realized, that the heart of your culture is religion. Specifically, Christianity. And that is why the West has been so powerful. Now, who says this? Chinese social scientists with over a 20-year study, comprehensive and systematic, those who are indoctrinated in Maoism and, and communism. We have seen that the difference in your country from every other country in the world is the prevalence of Christianity. Now notice what else they said. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism. So you see, it's not just capitalism. It's, just, it's not just an economic factor. 
It's capitalism with a conscience. It's capitalism that has a conscience that has been informed by Christianity. So we see that it, uh, the impact that it had on capitalism and then the successful transition to democratic politics. A democracy with a conscience, a conscience informed by Christianity. And we don't have any doubt about this, they contended. So you know what they began to do at that point? They began to see, okay, that's the kind of influence Christianity has had upon North America and upon the West. I wonder what it has done in our own country, because Christianity has been present in China for a long time, even though they've tried to stamp it out several times. And so they went on to point out, studies by Chinese sociologists reveal that in rural areas where traveling evangelists, that we would call them missionaries, where traveling evangelists introduce the Christian faith, faith opium addiction goes down, crime drops, and Christian families grow wealthier than their neighbors. So they, they even saw it play out in their own culture. In ways that are magnified in our culture. In short, what they're saying is that the church makes a huge difference. And again, this is almost imperceptible to us because it's so deeply ingrained, it's so deeply embedded in who we are and who we've become. And make no mistake about it, we have all kinds of value wars going on today. But up until this point, it has been so deeply ingrained and so deeply embedded in who we are, it's almost imperceptible to us on a million different fronts. It makes a huge difference. Christian values pay off. It makes a difference in how we view human dignity. We view human dignity differently than a lot of other countries in this world. We view women differently than a lot of other countries in this world. The whole matter of fairness. See, there's a lot of countries in the world fairness is not even a factor. Might makes right in a whole lot of countries. So the injustices that can happen to the poor, to the weak, to the sick so on like that, doesn't matter. Fairness isn't a factor. The whole thing of honesty, that's unique to Christianity. All of this is seen throughout secular life, even though they are aspects of Christianity and the message of the church. So, I don't know, have you ever watched the news and you see some barbaric, crazy thing going on in another country and you go, how can they do that? How, do they, how can they behave in that kind of way? Somebody steals a loaf of bread and they cut off his hand. I mean, what is that? Some little coup takes over the government. And as they began to implement their policy and their power and their presence across this little nation, anybody that resists them, they come along and they cut off a limb just to mark them, just to deter others from resisting them. Entire villages, every woman in the village is raped by military people. There's no respect for human life, no respect for women. How does such barbaric, crazy things go on in these other places? They are primarily vacant of the presence of the church 
and the message of Christianity. The absence of the church makes a huge difference. And what does it look like when the church is absent? When we are left to ourselves, when we are left to what is natural to us because we are a fallen people and our nature is fallen. Often we want to think about what nat- what is natural is, is what is preferred, what is better. Let's get back to nature. Let's get back to organic and so on. That's true in a, in a small realm of factors, but in the overall way of understanding what's natural, you don't want what's natural. Because what's natural is fallen. What's natural is broken. What's natural looks like racism. What's natural is adultery. Just following your impulses. Just doing what, whatever you want to do with whomever, wherever. What's natural is cheating and lying. First come, first serve. What's natural is power over other people and enslaving them. Might makes right. All those things are what's natural. Now, this is exactly what Paul addressed. I meant to give you a head start. Sorry about that. We're in Galatians today. So if you don't know where Galatians is, it's in the New Testament, but you can get into your index or into your table of contents and find it real quick. And we're going to be working in chapter 5 of Galatians. But as uh, you may recall, as Paul was starting churches all over the place, he did so in a little region called Galatia. Several churches he started in this region called Galatia. Later, years later, as he's trying to encourage the churches and help disciple them and train them and so on, he writes this letter to all these little churches in that region, and thus it's called Galatians. And one of the things he points out in verse 16 of chapter 5, he says, I, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, he's going to set up this dichotomy. He's going to set up this, this battle that goes on between what he calls what is fleshly or what is natural versus what is spiritual what is supernatural, extraordinary, a God intervention into the lives of people. So he he contends right off the front, walk by the Spirit, by the difference that God can make in your life, by the difference that the resurrection of Jesus can make in your life, by the power of what uh, God has been, been bringing forth through His church. Don't walk by what is natural or fleshly. If you let your nature, if you let your natural appetites and desires have full run of your life, it will lead to destructive and painful outcomes. So he begins to give a list of that. Look with me in verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh. Here's what's happened when you're natural. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He he couldn't even finish the list. 
That's what happens with natural living. And here's what he says as he leads into that. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Some versions read obvious. See, everything on that list, is anything a surprise to you? Did you go, really? Sexual immorality is what happens when God isn't present? None of that's shocking. That all makes sense. It, It all happens naturally. Sexual immorality is natural. Just following your desires and doing what feels good. He says uh, things like sensuality. Other versions call that word debauchery. You know what that is? It's doing whatever you want to, with whomever you want to, wherever you want to. When you're left to the flesh, when you're left to what is natural, that's the way people conduct themselves. And here's the fact of the matter. I especially say this to guys because guys seem to be more fallen often than, than gals. If it were not for the presence of the church and Christian influence and later laws that come out of that, that deter this kind of stuff, you'd be a mess. You'd be acting out all the time. You would have wrecked your life and the lives of others dozens of times over. I would have too. And your wives and your daughters would not be safe for a moment. Because this is what natural looks like. And when you can reflect on some countries where the people in power, and this is what was happening in Paul's day, the people that had power, the emperor, various uh, governmental officials, military officials, people with a lot of wealth and money, they could do whatever they wanted to with whomever they wanted to, wherever they wanted to, and they did. And this is what's going on in all these little third world countries where these little dictatorial type guys rise up with these coups. They do whatever they want to with whomever they want to, wherever they want to. That's natural. When it's unchecked by the presence of the church or by law. He says you'll fall into idolatry. Idolatry is when you esteem your coin collection more than you do people in God. Your car. Your stuff. Something becomes more important to you than people and than God. It's that way all over the place. Sorcery or witchcraft, some versions render it. It's just the the attempt to try to leverage the supernatural for your personal gain, your personal advance. Jealousy. Naturally, at the core of people, we're jealous people. You ladies, you, you know, most women, they won't admit it, they won't say it out loud because it's too ugly, but they hate beautiful women. Most women hate beautiful women. Most men hate wealthy men. Jealousy. And he goes on to talk about envy. Anger, fits of rage and anger. We'd all be walking around just spewing on on each other all the time, more than you see happen, if it were not for the presence of the Spirit. And so on his list goes. He says things like these. He stopped the list. The list could have gone on and on and on and on. And as we've been saying, the only way society can... uh, 
address this with some level of effectiveness is to create laws. Try to deter this ugly, awful stuff from taking place. And the fact of the matter is, if there were not laws, a lot of people would do a lot of wicked, ugly stuff because there wouldn't be a penalty to pay for it. They just would. That's who we are as fallen people. Now, as we continue, verse 22, he says, but there's a difference maker. There's something that changes that whole formula. There's there's something that redeems that fallen nature, and it's the Spirit. And once the Spirit of Christ begins to indwell a heart and transform a life, here's what happens. Verse 22, he says, there's a fruit that comes from that Spirit life. And that fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. In other words, that Spirit's presence transforms hate or selfishness to love. Tumultuousness, turmoil into peace. Harshness and anger into gentleness transforms these things so that we become new people. We have new families that make new communities, that make new cities, etc. And against these things, notice this phrase, there is no law. What a remarkable statement. Because law is not necessary. The Spirit so moves on a heart that even if there weren't any laws... You do the right thing. That's what happens when spirit transformation begins to happen to us. Even if there were no laws, you do the right thing. Verse 23, against these things there is no... You understand what a remarkable statement that is? Against spirit-shaped people, families, communities, there's no need for law. Have you noticed... That marriages that have been shaped by Christ, that are spirit-filled kinds of marriages, they have very few rules. Great families, very few rules. Great organizations, very few rules. You're not having to regulate and and put policy or or penalties uh, in place for all kinds of crazy stuff. Now, the church out of all this is contending that a spirit-shaped life, a spirit-shaped culture is superior to every other culture. Now, we tolerate a lot of other cultures. We, uh, you know, will give respect and space to people to live in a variety of kinds of ways. But unashamedly and enthusiastically, We contend a spirit-shaped life in a spirit-shaped culture is superior. We think honesty is superior to dishonesty. We think generosity is superior to selfishness. We think love is superior to hate. And we contend for that kind of life and that kind of culture. Now, whether you are a Christ follower or not, I hope you're seeing the benefits that come about to all of society when the church is present and when Christianity is present. The church 
is the steward. We hold both the message of eternal life. Here's how you can be reconciled to God and live forever with Him. And we also steward the message of a better life. Women have it better today because of the church. The downtrodden, the poor, the sick, the maimed, the lame, all have it better because of the church. It's the church that's been on the forefront of, hosp- of creating hospitals in a variety of communities around the world, of creating uh, education and institutions of education for those who would need that kind of help to be able to get ahead in life. It's been the church that took a stand and helped to eradicate slavery. You go, no, wait a minute. My history tells me the church was on the wrong side of the slavery issue. A lot of the church was on the wrong side of the slavery issue. And that's a, a, a great tragedy and travesty for which there has been much repentance. But in the end, it was the church that led the way to ending slavery in Europe and in North America. We not only steward the message of eternal life. Here's how you can have a life with God and have a life with God forever. We steward the message for a better life. And we steward that humbly. It's not an arrogant thing. It's not a prideful thing. We don't deserve it. We didn't create it. It's a God thing. We are just blessed recipients of it. So most of you knew, um, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, And for years, 30-plus years, there uh, was a pastor in Memphis by the name of Adrian Rogers. He used to be one of my heroes. He passed away in 2005. And uh, I I used to love to hear that guy preach. I used to wish and desire that I had his voice because he had the voice of God. Uh, But I've just got this little voice. So anyway... He tells the story about one time getting on a plane out of Memphis, going somewhere where he was going to speak or whatever. And the plane takes off. He drops his tray and he pulls out his Bible and he opens his Bible. He begins to read his Bible. And the guy's sitting next to him, business guy. And after a few minutes of watching Adrian read his Bible, he says, excuse me, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? Why? Why do you read a Bible? And if you've ever been asked something like that, you know you don't have an opportunity to give an extended response. You have an opportunity for a soundbite, right? It's just you got to give it like that or it's over. And so he's like quickly praying, oh, God, how do I respond to this? And the guy says, why do you read the Bible? And Adrian thought for a second. Then he said, well, my friend, I have discovered that the Bible is the only book that has the solutions to the three things that plague mankind. Sin, sorrow, and death. That's all he said. The guy said, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah. Pulls his magazine back up. Flight continues. He's looking at his magazine. Adrian's reading his Bible. After some lengthy period of time, the guy lowers his magazine. He goes, okay, okay. I've been thinking a long time. Is there something else besides sin, sorrow, and death that causes all of our problems? And I don't think so. So would you tell me more about what the Bible says? We just have to think about it. I mean, what are the real problems? Sin. Sorrow. Death. 
who or what can address that? And we contend that Jesus, the gospel, and the steward of that, the church, is all that can successfully address that. All of that to say this, friends, the church is a very big deal. Very relevant. Very important. Very integral and central to our society and to our lives to a better way. And so, I ask you, is this who you are? And is this where you are? Have you made a decision? Have you made a choice to build your life on Christ? Not on Christian religion, not just on Christian values and Christian principles and and things like that, but have you built your life on Jesus, a relationship with Him? That out of that relationship, it changes who you are. And it changes what's around you. And have you made church, not the building, not the institution, the movement, the activity of God, the workings of God, have you made that a big, 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 big part of your life, of your experience? The invitation today is, will you come? Become. Be transformed. Be changed. Be church. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray for my friends. Would you stir? Would you convince? By the presence of your spirit. This is true. This is right. This is worth investing the one and only life we have. And Lord, as people say yes to that, would you empower? Would you come upon their life freshly? In Jesus' name.